Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm delighted to welcome a very senior and accomplished professional from Gurgaon, the same city that I live in, Gurgaon, India, Radhika Bhalla. Radhika, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Radhika is an organizational psychologist. So Radhika, before we talk about uh, your the work that you're doing, tell me about your own journey in brief and what inspired you to specialize in psychometrics and talent profiling? So I um, I think I fell in love with psychology in uh, class 11. I took it as a subject against math mm-hmm. um, and wanted to pursue psychology. So I did um, psychology honors uh, from uh, DU. Uh, at that time, I think like most youngsters was very fascinated with clinical psychology. Uh, very, um, But during that time, I also got exposed to uh, organizational and industrial psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I had a choice in my master's uh, to specialize, uh, I had a favorite professor and he was a professor of um, organizational behavior and psychology. And that mm-hmm. is why I chose that specialization purely to be taught by him. That was my only desire. Mm. But in those two years of studying the subject, I, um, the passion grew and I decided to build a career in uh, OB or organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my second year, I did a nine month internship uh, with this organization called SmithKline Beecham, which mm-hmm. is now then became GSK consumer yeah. and now obviously doesn't exist in that form. And uh, the opportunities I got there in those nine months uh, gave me hope that there is an opportunity for psychologists like me to contribute to uh, well-being in organizations and also to bring in a lot of human-centered design in organizational processes. Mm -hmm. But the design and the research work that I wanted to do uh, was not possible in a large multinational, which is fairly siloed in terms of roles and in terms of what, uh, you know, a psychologist can bring to the table. So I moved into consulting in the year 2000, uh, where I co-founded Quadrangle Consulting uh, with my partner, Jyoti Grover. Mm -hmm. And um, we started with a mission, and I'm very proud to say that we've stayed very close to that mission, is Mm -hmm. to bring psychology to life for organizations in Mm -hmm. throughout our consulting work. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's now talk about the work that you're doing. But let me start with a very basic question, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times. Can you explain the role of organizational psychology in today's corporate world? So I think there are um, two uh, impact areas that organizational psychologists make. Hmm. One, um, all processes in the organization, whether they are designed uh, towards employees or towards customers, uh, deal with humans. Mm-hmm. How do you bring in human-centered design to your organizational programs? Right. So as an organizational psychologist, you bring in the human back into the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an employee standpoint, if you look at today's uh, organization, there is so much um, happening around I- engagement. Uh, there are three generations at work. There is well-being. And there, as an organizational psychologist, the fact that you understand human behavior, you can help organizations understand their talent profiles, mm-hmm. understand their consumer profiles better, and then design programs that can best nurture the engagement, the retention, uh, and the share of wallet. Mm. Interesting. And uh, Radhika, what are the biggest challenges facing organizations in terms of talent differentiation? 
I think there are uh, multiple. Uh, one clearly is uh, the generation itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way um, earlier you had a unilateral, a very unidimensional understanding of talent, which was linked to potential. People do well, they perform well in their jobs. Um, you give them higher growth, uh, they will stay with you. Mm-hmm. You can consider them uh, high potential. Uh, today, uh, when you have people of different generations, not everybody wants the classical growth. People are bringing in conversations of purpose, identity, and therefore that classical model of saying a high performer will want growth mm-hmm. or a high performer will become high potential itself is changing because every generation has a different requirement in their career. Right. The second challenge is uh, that performance in the current environment uh, does not guarantee performance in a future environment because the current and the future itself is so drastically different. Uh, technology has changed the landscape completely. Right. So just because you are a high performer today does not mean you will be a high performer in the future. So when organizations are differentiating uh, talent, they have to take into account uh, generational differences, individual identity and purposes coming in the way. Current performance is no more the only indicator of potential. Mm-hmm. And the last one is that even if you have differentiation, how are you going to retain those people? Mm-hmm. Because retention, again, uh, is one of the biggest challenges that organizations face today. Hmm, very interesting. So when I was reading about you, I was fascinated that you also run a masterclass, yes. which is psychology to business. Yes. How have these masterclasses evolved since their inception and what do you cover? So, you know, these masterclasses, uh, I started these masterclasses in 2015 mm-hmm. and um, they arose from uh, one of my own pain areas, which is when I'm doing a consulting project with a client and I'm bringing in a lot of frameworks from psychology, my clients don't understand the psychology, right? So they cannot understand the assumptions I'm making. They cannot understand the solutions that I want to bring to the problem statement. Mm -hmm. So I started to gather them in a room at very initial stages of my project to educate them about the framework of psychology that I would use. Uh, So just as an example, uh, if you are designing a sales incentive program, then I would want uh, the leaders to come into a room and I would take them through the theories of motivation and tell them how my design will pick from these elements. Mm -hmm. Uh, These conversations and these sessions, which were really tea sessions, uh, started to become very popular and clients wanted me to bring these not just to the internal design team, but also to larger audiences within their own setups. So just as an example, if I'm working on a hiring process to predict retention, then I would conduct a class on wh- what, what is retention and how does retention work? And therefore, what should we assess uh, when we are recruiting people? Mm-hmm. So what started off as a small group conversation started to become a three or four hour masterclass for larger managerial populations within a client setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, slowly, I started to get references from clients about other organizations who didn't want to engage with me as a consultant necessarily, but they wanted the masterclass. Mm-hmm. So the masterclasses then became a separate product that I designed and I took it to market. And they're also available in retail format. I've done classes in NASCOM. I've done classes. I've held my own open programs where a lot of people from different walks of life attend these. Mm-hmm. What I cover in these classes are um, current pain points um, of organizations One of my most popular classes, and after doing hundreds of them, they're still popular, is getting into the mind of Gen Z, getting into the mind of the millennial. Mm. Um, 
very very uh, motivating classes the theory of motivation people love that because everybody is struggling with motivating their workforce mm. some of these topics i think have stood test of time if i do have a window where i'm doing it for an organization then i like to spend some time and understand what their pain points are uh, and what are the topics that concern them the most regarding people and leaders and then i design a class around it mm. Mm. very interesting so now moving forward you know, when you talk psychometrics, um, I've been hearing psychometrics ever since I started working in 1979. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yet it's something which the is the domain within the domain of the human resources function. My question is, what are some common misconceptions about psycho psychometrics when it comes to the corporate world? So originally, when psychometrics was designed in the field of psychology itself, it was to create some kind of a scientific measure uh, to evaluate certain dimensions of human behavior, which would take very long to discover if you were just having a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and then this idea got picked up by organizations to say, okay, so if I have to understand a person, I need not necessarily rely on the inexperience of a line manager who does mm. not understand behavior, but I can use a tool or a psychometric that gives me some insights. Right. So what started as a very facilitative uh, tool uh, started to become an end in itself. Mm. So where we are today, very sadly, is um, instead of honing the skill of interviewing or honing the skill of having conversations, uh, people will find the shortcut and use psychometrics as a shortcut, mm. get information about people and then box them in a category. So that is one of the biggest misconceptions because psychometrics is one data point, but what you will discover about people by engaging with them and observing conversations and having engagement and conversations cannot be replaced. So psychometrics is not an end. It is a data point that should be explored. Right. So it pains me when people use psychometrics as an end to box people or take a decision about them. Mm -hmm. The second misconception is that, oh, one tool is better than the other. Mm -hmm. um, this was true maybe a decade back where different tools did not have the same level of investment in their research. Mm -hmm. Today, if you look at commercially available tools, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of the popular ones are fairly equal in their reliability, validity, uh, the user interface may be slightly different. The framework will be different, but they're all reliable. Mm. So the narrative around one tool and that becomes like the master tool and the main opinion maker in the space of uh, cognitive or personality assessment is also a misconception. And the third is um, that these tools are going to help me solve all my talent problems and I need not do more. So plugging a tool in a process is somehow the cheapest uh, uh, measurable uh, improvement you can make to it. Mm. So hiring process improve, karna, we will attach a tool to it. It, it works really fine. Mm. But that may not be the case. Right. So these, I think, will be the three very common misconceptions. Very, yeah. very interesting. And, you know, so one part is using psychometrics for evaluation. But the other part is also qualitative research. Yes. How does quali qualitative research contribute to workforce to solving workforce challenges? So, um, a quantitative research obviously has things like a questionnaire. Uh, so, when you make a questionnaire, you predefine the things you want to measure. Absolutely. In a qualitative research, you are trying to understand a phenomena. You're not predefining any of its dimensions. That is the beauty of the qualitative research. Mm. So, let's take an example. Uh, we are looking at retention. 
So you want your problem statement is why are people attriting? In a quantitative research, you will already put parameters like, okay, compensation, maybe it's my culture, maybe it is peer pressure, maybe my job is very boring, maybe it's the generation. But in a qualitative research, you are just understanding how do people make a decision to leave an organization mm -hmm. and leave the landscape open for the stories and narratives to emerge. Mm -hmm. And what is the most interesting in qualitative research is when you interact with people with a very simple understanding of, I want to understand how you look at careers and what makes you decide to stay or go. Mm -hmm. While people may have different stories and narratives, you will find common threads in those narratives across 50 or 60 people. And that common story is so powerful that it can give an organization an insight into what they can do to plug the hole. So in qualitative research, you are allowing people to bring their personal stories and narratives into the problem to help you understand the problem from their perspective. It is a longer process. It puts organization in a discomfort because you cannot make a slide that says 10% people said X because percentages, uh, percentiles, normal probability curve does not apply to a qualitative research, but it will help you understand a phenomena uh, really well and give you a unique perspective to it. Fascinating. My next question is, uh, the, can you explain the concept of multi-raters and its significance in leadership development? So multi-rater uh, is one of the most powerful tools for self-reflection and awareness because it allows you to get an understanding of how you're perceived by others. Hmm. A leadership behavior all happens in a social context, which yes. includes so many stakeholders, um, you know, my peers, my manager, my direct reports, my customers. So the multi-rater actually allows me to gather information about how I'm perceived by others. Hmm. And that's a very powerful mirror when leaders are wanting to understand themselves mm. and the impact that their behavior has uh, on their effectiveness and on the effectiveness of others. Mm. Uh, the challenge with the multi-rater is when you initiate a multi-rater, as a person, you need to be in a space where you're ready to receive diverse perspectives. Mm -hmm. You need to be in a psychological space to receive feedback. Very often when organizations run a 360, they run it like a process. Mm. It is forced upon people. Right. To say, oh, as a part of this, I'm running a 360, you can select your people or we can select reviewers and they will start giving you feedback. Mm. But nobody checks whether the receiver is ready to take feedback or the giver is ready to give feedback. Mm. But if you create a psychological space where people are willing to give and take feedback, then it is a very powerful mirror for self-awareness. The other is it allows you to make choices about how you want to be perceived. Mm. So when you look at your 360, when a leader looks at his or her 360 data, it is not about accepting what everybody is saying. Mm. It's about reflecting on experiences that I'm creating and then making a choice about, do I want to create this experience? Mm -hmm. If I don't, then these are the changes I will need to make. So it's a very empowering process mm. if it's done well. Mm. And how do you measure success um, of a lot of the work that you are doing in improving workforce performance? So in the work that I do, uh, I typically start with the problem statement to which we then co-create a ROI with the client. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. If you are making a sales incentive program, mm -hmm. uh, a classical ROI will be okay. So it should motivate people to do well. 
my ROI from a psychology standpoint will be if I'm making a sales incentive program, then did I convert a low performer into a high performer? Because very often the high performers will continue to get the incentive, the low performers will not, and the big divide will happen. So is my sales incentive plan converting some of the average or low performers into better performance? And do I have something to offer for them? So that would be one of the ROIs that I will create. Right. Uh, similarly, if you are working on um, attrition, uh, then uh, retention will become an ROI. Mm. But how we will define retention will be very different from just an overall index of saying, okay, my attrition should go down from, let's say, from 20 to 18. But to say, can I reduce attrition in the first 60 days and then in the 90 days, then in the 180 days, because the levers will be very different. Right. So when we look at the ROI, we define the milestones and the measures with the client to check whether the needle is moving. Okay. Fascinating. The other thing that I wanted to ask you was about technology. You know, technology has made deep inroads into human resources. Artificial yes. intelligence is being used. How is technology impacting the field of organizational psychology? Tremendous impact. So mm -hmm. um, when we look at psychology and we try and understand human behavior, the social context is a very important uh, pillar within which behavior is understood. Okay, right. Where you come from, what values you hold, what your social economic status is are very powerful demographic indicators that help us understand the assumptions you have about life. Mm. Now, earlier, this social context was what? It was my family, uh, what my mother and father did, my siblings, where I worked, who my friends were, what my friends were doing, where I lived. Today, it is my social life on technology. My influencers uh, are unknown people on Facebook, on, uh, uh, it's not called Twitter now, X, Mm. And so many other platforms. So today, when we have to understand human behavior, technology is a social context for me, mm. where there are alternate lives that people live, where their influences rest, uh, where they demonstrate a lot of behavior. Mm. So understanding uh, their social life on technology has become a very big input into my work. Mm. The other is how I take my work to people. So if you have to run something as simple as an assessment, technology has enabled that mm. uh, for you to run that assessment program or run that development program and give uh, experiences to people, large audiences across the world. Right. Uh, the third is, uh, which is a very dark side, is everybody's become a psychologist. Mm. Uh, there's this whole rise of pseudo-psychology. I agree. So very often when I um, run my master classes, I have a few pseudo psychologists in the class mm. who have um, read and educated themselves partially on some concepts. And that poses a challenge because I'm not dealing with just curious ignorance. I'm dealing with, um, you know, curious uh, misinformation as well. So I think those will be the three. Well said. And as the old saying goes, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, uh, so I think I have time for two or three more questions. My next question is on cultural diversity. And, you know, and as, as a country, we are an incredibly diverse country. Absolutely. How does cultural diversity impact your approach to talent profiling and assessments? Uh, we are so diverse that it is so hard to ignore culture. So when I do research, um, even when I make competencies or I do research or I run assessments, 
our north south i mean just to put it very broadly mm. north south east west are like four different countries correct uh, rural urban suburban is a clear divide so i'll give you an example uh, relationships are important relationship and interpersonal um is very very important in getting work done in india now this is a generic statement how interpersonal is used in north south east west is very different the nature of those relationships is very different uh, on the continuum of transactionality versus deep belonging uh, how we experience it in the north and how we experience it in, in the south is very different mm -hmm. so when we pick up any competency we are very sensitive to how does this transform in my cultural ethos mm -hmm. you look at uh, customer service customer service in the north and the concept of customer service in the south itself mm. is so diverse yeah and when we define customer service and is indexed we take into account those cultural differences mm. very interesting thank you and uh, okay my next question is that how important is emotional intelligence when it comes to uh, leadership development i think it's very very important and emotional intelligence is a new um, more a new word i think made very famous by daniel goldman somewhere in the early uh, 2000s yeah. um so this concept of social intelligence um, was given in 1920 by a psychologist called thorndike um, and he said it's one of the most important intelligences emotional intelligence uh, is very important because all our behavior happens in a social context mm -hmm. um so how we regulate our emotion how we present our emotion how we respond and react to triggers all happens in a in a context where there are other people involved right and that is where um my sensitivity to a social context the way i will demonstrate my behavior becomes one of the most important cornerstones but emotional intelligence is like a very big word within it are so many finer elements of emotional maturity display sensitivity empathy and each one of these uh, is very very important for success as a leader mm -hmm. so while people talk about emotional intelligence it's not one thing there are so many factors if you look at the research uh, there are more than uh, 14 15 critical factors of emotional intelligence empathy is a big one that is being spoken to now correct, correct. and the other thing i think that's made a difference is our interactions and the impact that we need to make today is in such short periods of time like even in our conversation today you and i have what 25 minutes to make an impact on each other hmm. i don't have two days so within those 20 minutes how do i present how do i regulate emotion how do i decide what to react to as becoming more important right today for leadership development emotional intelligence is therefore more regarded because the time spans of interactions have reduced mm. and the medium of interaction has reduced whatsapp uh you can do very hurtful communication on whatsapp right it's okay. the worst method to communicate but it is a medium of communication right. emotional intelligence and how i respond to even a whatsapp message has become important today because that is where my leadership effectiveness gets tested mm. great response thank you I think my last question to you, and this is for the thousands of people who will listen to our conversation. Based on your deep understanding of organizational psychology and all the work that you have done, and given the fact that over seventy-four percent of our viewers and listeners are under thirty-four, what would you say are three lessons you would want a lot of our viewers and listeners to take away from our conversation? so at an individual level what i would tell them is that you are a unique individual and your uniqueness is what needs to shine mm. you do not need to get averaged with anything 
Mm. Uh, so it's very important to focus on the story that you tell yourself mm. uh, about yourself, about the social context uh, that has shaped you mm. um, and about your aspirations and dreams. And mm. we should have absolutely no shyness in bringing our unique proposition out to the world. Correct. And we should resist uh, getting boxed and bracketed. Mm. So even the word like Gen Z is a box, mm. right? So um, don't think, oh, I'm Gen Z, I'm a millennial, I can do X. You're mm. a unique person within that box with unique needs. Yes. So that would be my, um, you know, one of the takeaways I'd like the audience to have. Mm. If this if this audience works in organizations, which I'm sure a lot of them do, yeah. then it is to say that everything that you are doing is impacting another human. So spend mm. time understanding that human, whether it's your employee, customer, stakeholder, uh, observe their behaviors, um, spend time meeting people and having conversations. Do not rely on technology as the only means to tell you how people think, behave. Mm. The cues that you will get when you do those market walks, when you spend time with your maintenance team on the ground, mm. uh, when you sit through that board meeting with your manager taking notes is inseparable because what you learn about human behavior is what you will start applying to all your processes and design. So as much interaction you can do, the better your design and effectiveness will be. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. Those will be the two. <laughs> very, very interesting. And on, on that note, Radhika, and your wonderful lessons, and the first one is so powerful. Each one of us is unique. Don't get averaged out. Believe in yourself. Yes. The second, equally powerful. It is so critical to be able to understand other people you work with because only through that understanding will relationships become much deeper and uh, I think that's such an important takeaway that everyone must have heard from Radhika. Thank you, Radhika, for speaking to me about your own Thank journey. You. Thank you for speaking to me about so many different aspects about organizational psychology. I think I learned many new things from you today. Thank, Thank you, you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.